0: Pray that God would give me strength to get through this. And of course, we've had a, quite a struggle this week uh, physically, so we will see. Uh, but, you know, as Paul says, when we are weak, then we are strong because God is our ever present help and strength. The late A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which we went through that book some time back here on a Wednesday nights. Or was it Sunday morning? Might have been Bible study. He wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. End quote. What we think about God affects every aspect of our lives, it will affect how we interact with family, friends, neighbors, co workers and even complete strangers. It will affect our thoughts and actions. It will affect our language, how we speak. It will affect how we spend our time, how we do our jobs, what we do for leisure, entertainment, and recreation. It will affect how we spend our money, what we do with the resources that God has blessed us with. It will affect where and with whom we choose to worship, if we choose to worship at all. Most importantly for Christians, it will affect our personal and corporate usefulness for the advance of Christ's kingdom on this earth. In a word, it will affect our entire world view. So, who is God to you? That's the question you need to consider this morning. What do you know and believe about Him? What does your life say about who God is? Here's a question. What do those around you know of God based on your life? But it's not just enough to know about God. You must personally know Him. That is, you must be in a saving relationship with the God of the Scriptures. Now we know there are many different imaginations that have been since the fall in the garden of what and who God is. There are many different false religions. Now, I would submit to you, within the scope of what's called Christianity, sadly, there are different ideas of who God is. So this is a very important topic. This is a very important question. And this is not one we can afford to get wrong. There are things in Scripture that we may not fully understand. We may have differences of of opinions on certain doctrinal beliefs. And that's okay. But we can't get this wrong. Your very life depends on it. Who is God? And what do you, or how do you know Him? Tozer continues in that same book, he writes, The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of Him and of her. In all her prayers and labors, this should have first place. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them the undimmed and undiminished, that noble concept of God which we receive from our Hebrew and Christian forefathers of generations past. This will prove of greater value to them, the the next generation of Christians, than anything that art or science can devise. End quote. Not only is it important that we get right personally who God is, but we must be able to rightly pass this information, this knowledge along to the next generation of Christians and pray that God, the Holy Spirit will make it a reality in their lives and in their hearts. And we talked about it this this morning. We persevere only because God preserves. And so we we know that Christ will preserve his church, albeit maybe a small remnant, but there will be a people of God. So the context of our passage today is Paul's prayer. Paul starts this letter, basically what what we kind of look at is by by singing a hymn of praise, singing forth some great doctrinal truths about God and about who we are, in Christ, who the, who the Christian, who the believer is in Christ and and he builds to a crescendo with the words to the praise of his glory, and then immediately goes into prayer. Last Lord's day we looked at the reasons for what Paul writes next, his prayer for the dear saints in Ephesus. It is my hope and prayer today that we can flesh out the content of Paul's prayer. Most importantly, I hope and pray that we too, along with the Ephesian church, will receive the blessings that Paul beseeches God to richly bestow on those who rightly name the name of Christ. That we too may know Him better. And that to the praise of His glorious grace. So with that in mind, let's look together at our passage before us today. Ephesians chapter 1, and we will read verses 15 through 21. This is the word of our God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you this morning wanting, desiring, hoping to know You better. And we ask that through the power of Your Holy Spirit You would continue to to richly reveal Yourself to us. Father, not just things about You, but who You are, and what that means for us, and what that means in our lives. And Father, we we want to know you better so that we can serve you better. So that we can glorify you more. For you deserve all glory, all honor, all praise, all obedience. So Father, would you make that a reality in our lives and in our hearts here this morning? And Father, if there is anyone here that does not know you, does not know Christ, would you be pleased to open the eyes of their hearts to give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you change their hearts so that they have wills to obey? And do this for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. (coughs) The first portion of Paul's prayer, and and he kind of sets a a pattern in most of his prayers, is, is thanksgiving. Even when he's instructing the Christians at Philippi to, to make all the requests known to God, what does he say first? When Thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And so Paul, uh, true to his own natures, and from what he's just been saying and what he's, the report he's heard and, and his thankfulness of, to, about what God has done for the Ephesian church, he gives thanks to God. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. When is the last time somebody has told you that? Now, people have come to you and said, I'm praying for you, brother. I'm praying for you, sister. When is the last time somebody has come to you and says, I thank God for you, brother. I thank God for you, sister. And Paul is, he's telling, he's sharing his mind and heart here. His, his love for Christ is flowing out in his love for the dear saints at Ephesus. And he says, I, thank, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. A lot of times when we pray for people, we're not really thankful for them. <laughs> because they need prayer, right? I'm not thankful for this person because they need to be saved. Well, we should be thankful that we are praying to a God who can save. And therefore, we're thankful for that individual because as long as they're still breathing and have life on this earth, there's a chance that God can change them and bring them into His family. And that should cause us to be thankful. Thanksgiving was an integral part of Paul's prayers. And that begs the question, What was it that Paul was so thankful for? Now we can pick out a few things. He's already told us in this passage. But there's more things that Paul was thankful for. Paul was thankful that God had chosen a people to reveal himself to. You know, I was listening this past week and I've heard this section from R.C. Sproul several times where he's saying that people ask him the question, why doesn't God save everybody? And he always counters with the question, no, the question should be, why does God save anybody? And Paul is thankful because God, the creator of the universe, the God of glory, has chosen to save the people. And it's not just some, okay, These people are saved and these people are not. No, these people are saved. How? Because God reveals himself to them through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we have throughout Scripture's progressive revelation until all revelation is fulfilled in Christ. Paul was thankful that God had chosen the people. Paul was thankful in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He he wrote at the beginning of this letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love he predestined us for adoption to to himself as sons. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul's thankful for that. He's thankful that God has revealed that, that great truth to him. And he's thankful, if we go back a little bit in this chapter... That God had not only revealed himself to, to believing Jews, but had also included Gentiles. And so Paul is thankful that God had revealed himself through the gospel to these believers in Ephesus. Paul wasn't self-centered. He wasn't conceited. Look what I have done. No, no, no. He shared the gospel, and he was thankful for what he saw Christ doing. And he tells these people, I am so thankful for you. Paul was thankful for the grace of God, which was so richly <clears throat> manifesting itself at this present time in the life of the Ephesian church. He says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. He, he had heard of their saving faith, people coming to saving faith in Christ. He would heard of their faithfulness to Christ as they continued on in their service of Christ. He said, and your love toward all the saints, that sweet spirit of unity that at least existed at that time between the jewish and gentile christians in ephesus you remember how the church started paul spent three months in the in the synagogue there until the naysayers finally forced him to leave and then he went out and and they met in somebody's house for for two years and people were coming to faith jews and gentiles alike and in some of the letters Paul writes, he has to, to really stress the fact that, look, Jewish Christians are not better than Gentile Christians, and vice versa. We're all one in Christ. But here, apparently at this time, there was a, a sweet spirit of unity. They dis- demonstrated their love toward all the saints. Paul was thankful for that. I'm sure Paul was eternally thankful that Christ had personally chosen him to be an apostle to the Gentiles that fateful day on the road to Damascus. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 9. We'll take a quick look at this. The conversion of Paul. Acts chapter 9. Let's start in verse um, 3. And, and you know the backstory. Okay, Paul was uh, uh, there and he witnessed uh, the, the martyrdom of Stephen. He, he had uh, watched the coats, so to speak. He was the, the, the valet for the coats, holding the coats and, and lending his approval to the those who were stoning uh, uh, Stephen. And then he had been given authority. From the high priest to go around and arresting and persecuting the the way, uh, those who uh, the sect of the Nazarene, those who followed after Christ, and 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 he was on a very mission here to go to the city of Damascus to do just that—to imprison and arrest, arrest and imprison and persecute uh, those who uh, were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so he's he's on the road heading there. Now as he went on his way he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him Saul, Saul why are you persecuting me? And he said who are you Lord? And he said I am Jesus whom you are persecuting but rise and enter the city And you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and to the children of Israel." Paul was called by Christ personally uh, not only into salvation, not only to be a Christian, but to be an apostle to the Gentiles. I praise the Lord for that. I I don't know if any of you are from Jewish background, but I'm not. And so I I praise the Lord for that, that the gospel went out to the Gentiles as well. Paul was thankful for that, and, and I'm thankful for that I believe because of Paul's faith he had learned to be content and thankful in any situation. And so when the Apostle Paul says that number one we are to be thankful he's he's leading by example. And number two when he tells people that he's praying and giving thanks to God for them you can bet on that because he is. Because he had learned to be content what, what is content what what is content what does it breed thankfulness he had learned to be content and thankful in every situation he writes to the church in Philippi I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received revived excuse me your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity now that I am, not that I am speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger what's the secret of fl- facing plenty and hunger? being thankful for what you have abundance and need I can do all things through him who strengthens me Paul is thankful for whatever God provides for him, or doesn't provide for him, it, can, can we be thankful for what God withholds from us? I mean, that's that's a little harder, isn't it? We, we can be thankful. It's easy to be thankful for what God provides from us, provides for us. But what if He withholds? Now let's think about this. In Christ, what has God provided for us? Forgiveness, mercy grace in Christ what has he withheld from us hell judgment damnation can we be thankful for that so if we can be thankful for that that can bleed over to the rest of our life and we can be thankful for the little things that he withholds from us you might not get that, that car you wanted or the job that you wanted but God provides Paul was thankful I think most importantly though, Paul was thankful that it was possible for sinful human beings to know God. And to know Him more and more as God so willed to reveal the glories of His marvelous grace and mercy to us. That brings us to the content of Paul's intercessions on behalf of the Ephesian congregation. And the primary theme of Paul's intercessions is that you may know Him more. Paul wanted them to have a fuller, deeper knowledge of God. (coughs) That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now the word revelation there is, is not speaking of divine revelation, new revelation, but more of illumination. Okay. We can't use that verse to, 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 to say that we can get revelations from God today. That that's, that's done. That doesn't happen. We believe in the cessation of that. That the canon is complete. Paul was asking God the Father to reveal himself. He was asking God the Father to reveal himself to them in ways that he had not yet done. Okay, what's, what does that look like in the life of the believer? When you're converted, do you know everything there is to know about God? I'm sure if anybody was close, it was probably the Apostle Paul. I mean, he had been to all the religious schools. I mean, he knew the Torah. He knew the Pentateuch. He knew about God. As, as was outlined in Moses and the prophets, right? But he did not know God until he met Christ in person on that road to Damascus. And Paul is praying that God will Progressively and continually reveal himself to the believers in Christ. We learned this morning that there will be one day in the future, maybe distant, maybe not so distant, where we will no longer need a progressive revelation because then we will know because we will see him face to face God will be with us and we will be with him the dwelling place of God will be with man and he will be our God and we will be his people and then our knowledge will be full not perfect, full we can never have a perfect knowledge of who God is because God is so far above and beyond a finite creature's ability to learn and comprehend but we will know fully what he wants to reveal to us James Montgomery Boyce he writes speaking of what Paul uh, has spoken of here He had taught the truths we find in this letter indeed in this very chapter that God is a trinity the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that God created the world that He elected a people to salvation even before creation and that He worked in Jesus Christ to accomplish that salvation by the cross. Paul has spoken of predestination, redemption, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. He has reminded the Ephesians of the final subjection of all things to God through Jesus at the last day. This is a seminary course worth of theology, and it has come from Paul. We might very well ask, what do you mean, Paul? When you pray that the Ephesians might come to know God better, you have taught them all these things already. Do you mean that they do not know them? Or that there is some hidden esoteric information still to come? No, Paul would answer. You have misunderstood me. I am not praying that the Ephesians might come to know more about God though they probably do have a great deal more to learn, but rather that they might know Him. Knowing Him and knowing about Him are quite different. End quote. So we have to look at what Paul is praying for here. He's not simply praying that the Ephesians get more knowledge about God, but that this knowledge of God leads them to a, a deeper, fuller relationship with god it's kind of like a marriage right you may know the person about them and a little bit about them when you marry them right but the longer you stay married the more you know about them and now in a sinful world that doesn't necessarily mean that you grow closer unfortunately but but by the grace that God gives us as sinful creatures, we can still grow closer and closer to our spouse the more we get to know them. But I'm going to let you in on a little secret. You You know what the secret to that is? Both of you looking to Christ. See, Christ is here, and we are here. And as we both look to Christ and get closer to Christ, see what's happening. As we get closer to Christ, we're getting closer to each other. And that's the secret, dear ones, of a a good marriage. Looking to Christ. Paul, as an apostle, had the privilege of special revelation from God. A privilege that we don't have. However, all the special revelation that God gave the apostle, we do have. We have it here. So we don't need God to come to us and say, okay, I got something new for you because God has already given it. And matter of fact, we have an advantage because the church has had some 2,000 years to go over this information, to parse it out, and to discuss it, and, and to pray on it. Paul is not naive enough to think that he as a mere man could explain God to them in a way that they could understand, apart from the enlightening ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul wanted their head knowledge to be a heart reality. You know, we can give people information. I can sit here and tell you all day information about who Jesus is, what Jesus accomplished. I can, I can go into the great doctrines. I can try to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, Try. I could try to explain the the doctrine of the virgin birth, uh, double imputation, and all those other doctrines. I could try to explain those. I could give you information all day. But unless the Holy Spirit takes that information and applies it to your heart, it's just information. And it's useless information until it's a reality here. Jesus didn't say... out from the brain proceeds all things, right? Now he said, from the heart proceeds all things. The, the, the center of who we are. Notice what, what Paul is, is asking, though. That God would send the Spirit to give them what? To give them enlightened eyes in their heart. In other words, to, to illumine these great truths. In their hearts. You know, when we think of relationships, what do we think of? I, I really like that person in my mind. I, I love that woman with all my brain. We, we don't say things like that. I love that person with all my heart. Paul's speaking of relation here. Not knowledge. Not specifically just Knowledge, but knowledge that leads to a deeper relationship. And so Paul is requesting that God would give them the spirit of wisdom to further reveal God to them that they may know Him. Commenting on this, Charles Hodge writes, There is a twofold revelation of this wisdom. The one Outward, by inspiration, or through inspired men, right? The information that we have in the Word of God. And the other, inward, by spiritual illumination. The Holy Spirit taking this inspiration and applying it to our hearts. The apostle was sharing with them these inspired truths. You have been predestined by God to be adopted as sons and daughters. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is your guarantee that you will receive the inheritance on that day. He's given them these great truths. And now he's praying that God, the Holy Spirit, will illumine these great truths, that they will fully understand, and it will deepen their relationship with Christ. Paul was asking God to distinguish himself from all the false gods, that the Ephesian Christians had formerly worshipped and yes might I even say from the Yahweh that the Jews had formerly worshipped because when they rejected Christ the God they worshipped became a false God and not the God of scripture now we have got to be careful with that because God didn't change God never changed. He's still the same God. Yahweh of the Old Testament is still God. But when the Jews rejected Christ, they no longer believed in Yahweh of the Old Testament, even though they would say they did. So even they worshiped a false god. Paul is asking God to distinguish himself from all of these false gods. Now, you know that the, the Gentiles, I mean, oh my goodness. They had a plethora of gods. Remember when Paul was in Athens? He's walking around looking at all these shrines. They were, they were so religious that they even built the shrine to the, the unknown God. Kind of like we didn't cover all the bases here, right? no Paul wanted God to distinguish himself to to reveal himself in a way that put all these other gods to rest and that that would draw their focus on him through Christ and worship him in spirit and in truth he wanted them to know God as the creator For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Colossians 1.16 Paul wanted them to know God as the provider. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. (coughs) Paul wanted them to know all there is that they could possibly know about God. He wanted them to know God is the all-powerful one. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Isaiah fourteen twenty-six and 27. Paul wanted them to see that even in the midst of all the trials and tribulations and hardships that they were enduring or, or were about to endure, that God was in control. He was the all-powerful one. God is the eternal one. Not like these false gods that can get their names changed. Remember, the Greeks had these pantheon of gods, and then when the Romans took over, they just kept the same gods and just changed their names. God doesn't change like that. He's the eternal one. The psalmist writes, Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Paul wanted them to know God eternal who changes not. And I think you'll see towards later on in Paul's prayer why he wants them to know all these things and why it's important Paul wanted them to know that God was the self-existent one. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Exodus 3.14. The self-existent one. Not relying on on some gods to get married and have children to make lesser gods or more gods. But the self-existent God who is not created. Who has always existed. He wanted them to know God is the only Savior. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And as Peter would preach in that sermon, there is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. And that name is Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. Paul wanted them to experientially know the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of religious circles today, the Trinity is left out, is it not? Some people will focus just on Christ. Some people focus just on the Holy Spirit. Some false religions... Like Judaism, will focus just on God, the Father. Paul wants them, and he's mentioned that already in this letter, in Ephesians. He wants them to know the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We look here, in verse 18, Paul writes, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, why? That you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul wanted them to know more of God's calling. His electing grace. Paul wanted them to be secure in their faith. And the doctrine of election does that, right? It secures us in our faith. It gives us hope that is a sure thing. because If it was my choice, I could change my mind. But because God changes not and it's his choice, it cannot be changed. Paul wanted them to know his benevolent grace that everything that God blesses us with is a blessing. It, the, the rain, the sunshine, it's not just his benevolence is not just of course for the believer, but it's for all mankind. He reigns on the just and the unjust alike. Paul wanted them to know that that, that God is the provider. In His benevolent grace, He provides for all creatures. He wants them to know, as part of their calling, His saving grace, most importantly. Not because of what I have done, He saved me. Not because of my righteousness, He saved me. But he saved me because of Christ, Christ's finished work. And I am given Christ's righteousness, and that through the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Paul wants them to know and understand God's saving grace. And what does that do? What does God's saving grace do? It excludes all boasting. Paul will say that very thing in, in in chapter two. We're saved by grace, so that none may boast. I can't stand before God and say, "Well, I'm smarter than so and so. I was able to I, I was able to read and understand the gospel, and so I was saved. I, I can't boast in that, or I haven't committed as many bad sins as this other person." I can't stand before God and boast in my righteousness. It only takes one sin to be forever worthy of hell. Let me rephrase that. It doesn't even take one sin to be worthy of hell. Why? Because I have have inherited Adam's sin guilt. Adam's guilt has been imputed to me. I could be born and never sin and still would be in hell. Why? I am guilty. I am guilty in my federal head. But I praise God I'm not in that federal head anymore. (laughs) Because I am in Christ who is the second Adam. The last Adam. And he is not guilty. And therefore I am found not guilty in him. Not because I'm sinless Because I'm not Not only did I inherit Adam's guilt But I inherited Adam's sin nature I don't become a sinner When I sin I sin because I am a sinner You see the difference there I'm not waiting to sin To become a sinner I am born a sinner Therefore I will sin It's my nature until my nature is changed by the power of the living God. Paul wants them to know his sanctifying grace as they are going through life, walking through life together with their brothers and sisters in Christ, as they are growing in their faith and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants them to know his preserving grace to grant them assurance throughout their walk. That's something hard for us to grasp because... You know, we we don't have people threatening us all the time because of our faith. Why why is this happening to me? Maybe God's punishing me. Um, No, Paul wants them to know God's preserving grace to give them assurance in all things. And Paul wants them to know more, not just know these things, because they already know some of these things or some of all of these things. Paul wants them to know them more fully. And Paul wants them to experience them more fully God's unifying grace and finally the consummation of God's redeeming grace the eternal state of the church in glory Paul wants them to fix their eyes on Christ and the hope that is to come Christ is not somebody that just lived in the past somebody that died and was buried and was raised and is in heaven but Christ is going to physically return one day And we are to be looking to Christ so as not to be caught unawares. Even even though Jesus is going to come as a thief in the night, it ought not catch us unaware if we are paying attention, if we are looking to Christ and doing our Father's business. Paul wanted them to know more of God's power. The Greek word used here, dunamis, is the same word from which we derive our word, what? Dynamite. Power. When you think of dynamite, what do you think of? Let me ask you this question. Can you have a close encounter with dynamite and not be changed? I guarantee the answer to that is no. And you cannot have a close encounter with the power of God and not be changed. Paul wants them to experience this power. And he's going to reassure them about what this power is. Paul is praying that the Ephesian Christians may truly come to experience the power of God in their lives. Not just the saving power, but the sanctifying power. The reassuring power. The power that takes them from start to finish. The one who has begun the good work will finish it. And that power will be progressively more and more. Dear ones, it takes the power of God to resist sin it takes the power of God to do right and to not do the wrong if you try to do this in your own strength you will fail every single time he wants them to know that the power of God that created the entire universe is the same power that called them out of darkness into light in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth right right And God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. And that same power, that same spoken word, is what calls us out of darkness into light. And when you are called out of darkness, what's going to happen? You're going to come into the light. By the power of the living God. He wants them to know... That the power of God that raised Christ physically from the dead <coughs> is the same power that regenerates the spiritually dead. And it is the same power that ensures the future physical resurrection of God's people. You can see how assuring all this is, right? It should strengthen our faith. It should give us hope. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Spiritual resurrection. Spiritual life. This, 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 this new birth. This regeneration. And of course, one day, a physical, literal resurrection. Resurrection. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. Dear ones, that's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And if you truly believe Christ was raised from the dead, then you will believe these promises. The very power of God that elevated Christ high above all principalities and authorities and seated him at the Father's right hand is the same power that transformed the lives of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think that becoming a Christian and having no change in your life is is a good thing, you haven't become a Christian. If you are not changed, let's go back to the, let's go back to the dynamite. How about this? If you stand out here on the highway on this sidewalk, and you step out in front of an 18-wheeler. Do you think you're going to be changed? You cannot have an encounter with an 18-wheeler as a, as a human being and not be changed. When God saves us, He changes us. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is saying to these Ephesian Christians, I want you to know the power of God so that you can walk in a manner worthy of Christ. You can continue this love for all the saints that you have. You can continue in your faithfulness to Christ and and your faithfulness. And have your faith in God strengthened. And it is by the power of God that we are now, even now, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul will write in chapter 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're there now, spiritually. All right? That's a reality now. Paul wants these Ephesian Christians to know that. They might be slaves, they might be persecuted. But no matter what life throws at them here, They are even now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's reality in your life if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a saving relationship with the Lord, you are seated even now with Him in the heavenly places. And that has taken place by the power of the living God. And so Paul prays that the Ephesians would have have God reveal Himself to them progressively more and more. And he would do this through the power of the Holy Spirit, enlightening the eyes of their hearts. And then he explains, how does God do all this? By the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Dear ones, that's the power that we possess. That's the power that, that, that not only transforms us, but that continues our transformation, continues the progression of our faith. And Paul was praying that for the Ephesian church. And I believe Paul was praying that for believers everywhere. Dear ones, we ought to pray that for each other. We ought to pray that for each other. In our passage today, we have seen the mind and heart of Paul as he prayed for the saints in Ephesus. He gave thanks to God for them, and he made intercession for them. He prayed that God would continue to reveal himself to them in power and glory. He prayed that the Ephesian Christians wouldn't just have an academic knowledge of God, but that they would continually more and more experience His presence in their lives. That they would be continually changed by His infinite, omnipotent power until that day when Christ returns and all is made new. The apostles' prayer for the dear saints in Ephesus should be our prayer for each other here today. It is my prayer for you. I pray that everyone here today will experience the saving, life-changing grace of the living God. And that all will respond in repentance and faith. May we continually, day by day, learn more about Him. And may we get to experientially know our triune God more fully and intimately. As we receive and experience and live by His wonderful, sanctifying grace to the praise of His eternal glory. That is my prayer for each one here today. Let's pray. Holy Father, once again we ask that You would make this a reality in our lives, that You would continually and progressively, more and more reveal Yourself to us, that we may know You experientially, Father, that we may know You, And through our knowledge of you, Father, that we would serve you and obey you and love you. Father, this takes the power of your Holy Spirit to do this, to accomplish this in our lives. So I pray that you would accomplish this by the power of your Spirit in each person here today. That they would know your power and that it would transform their lives. And that we would live each day for Your glory more and more. And that we would never take our eyes off Christ, but eagerly await His return. And we give You all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you'd stand with me and let's turn our hymnals to 676 and sing our closing hymn, More About Jesus. 676.